0: How many different names or titles did Jesus go by? 20, 50, 75, 100, 150, 200, 250? 150? No. Nope, not 50, not 75. Not 20. Right around 200 names given or titles given for Jesus in the New Testament. In the New Testament. Which one of these was the one that he took and used for himself the most? Yeah, you got it. Son of Man is the title that he used more than any other title reference to himself. In the four Gospels, you have it uh, 79, some say, and some say, by definition, 80. So you have that title being used. In fact, he uses it in Matthew chapter 24 in Matthew 24, several times when he's giving prophetic information. The setting is Tuesday. He's there right before the Friday that he's going to be executed. It's that Tuesday. He has marched into the city on Palm Sunday. Monday, he cleansed the temple. Tuesday, he's in a lot of different controversies. He's being challenged by the Jewish leaders. Since he cleansed the temple, they're going to ask him, you know, who gave you the authority? You know, what about the resurrection? They're trying to trip him up, trying to reduce his popularity, get him in trouble with the crowd. Get him in trouble with the Romans, and as they ask questions, he just keeps on whipping them and besting them in his answers. And then there's a point that they don't dare ask him any other questions. They just they are stunned into silence. And so Jesus starts speaking to them in that sixth session of what we would call uh, the conflicts with them. And he starts talking to the crowds about the Pharisees, and that's in Matthew chapter 23. And he starts talking about here's what the Pharisees are like. Now remember. The the Pharisees are considered the most spiritual, most godly people by the crowds. They know they're hypocrites at times, but still they're elevated in the mind of the people. They are clergy. They are their rulers, their leaders, um, even elevated more than the high priestly line of the Sadducees. And so Jesus starts talking about them. And you read in Matthew chapter 23, some of the comments he makes, they love to be, um, Greeted in the marketplace, they want to be called father. They want to. In verse nine, they love that idea. That idea. We think we we conclude last week that it was that idea of being called father. Is that they're the uh, propagators of spiritual life? They're the custodians of spiritual life. And he's saying, "Call no man father. You have one alone in heaven." And so he's given them. Uh, he's given many different comments about them. And starting with verse thirteen, he goes on and he starts really pronouncing some strong statements. And if you look starting with verse. 13, and page down about every, every, um, Uh, verse or two or three verses, it'll begin with a woe. The woe has the idea of damnation, judgment upon you. And it's really, really really strong terminology that he's using against them. And so when he starts doing this, I think what we want to remember is that the crowds are going to be absolutely shocked that he is condemning their spiritual leaders. And not only that he's using a woe, or basically, you're going to go to hell because of this, in those strong types of terms, is the reasons that he gives, We looked at some of them last week. You shut up the kingdom of heaven. You are with your teachings. You you aren't even going to enter and you're keeping other people from entering. So that idea of stifling and shutting up the kingdom. Then he speaks about it a little bit further where he talks about how you pray and do all these things. But he says, woe unto you, verse 14, you go through all this prayer, this ritual, but you don't have a concern in your heart. You don't care about the needy, the widows. You're all about rituals, not relationships. Then he goes on a little bit. Uh, further. and He talks about in verse 15. He says, woe unto you because you're trying to make other people to become Jewish and all you're doing is you're making them more twofold a child of the devil. You are blind. You're just, you're falling off a cliff into damnation and the people that you're getting to follow you, it's the same type of thing. You're zealous but you're not helping people out. And so he starts calling them the blind guides condemning them about their oaths and how they manipulate and they have what you and I would call a moral dishonesty. That is, they twist the truth. They say these oaths and they can make these promises and if they say it a certain way they don't have to keep their word. They're, you know, their fingers are crossed type of an idea. And he condemns them for that idea of inconsistency. He pronounces a fifth woe and here's where we were just wrapping up last week. He talks about you tithe the mint and the rue and it's important that you do these things and you know, the, it ought to be done. But while you're tithing the very littlest things in your garden and you're getting all this debate over gro- should we tithe the gross or should we tithe the uh, the the net and he's all you know they're all upset about it. He's saying you don't even deal with the weightier matters, the justice, the love, the compassion towards other people, and he condemns them for it. Then he goes on, and this is where we stopped last week. He says that you are all concerned about the outside of the cup. And we made this observation last week as we were closing down verse 25. You may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within are full of extortion and excess. And he says, you blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which was in the, in the cup and the platter, In their culture, they did debate. Should we or how should we clean up the dishes? Which dishes should we clean first? He's really not talking about their plates. He's not talking about their cups. Actually, what vessel is he talking about? Their body their body, their spirit. That's what he's referring to. But he's using where they get, and, and they had tremendous amount of writings over what how they should cleanse and how they should dry. and there was It was all kinds of specifications about what they should do to really make sure that everything is clean on the outside. They themselves with their own bodies, with their own clothing, with all of this. And he said, hey, the inside of the platter you should be worried about. The inside of the person. And you're not. And so he's condemning them because they were worried more about the outside, the external rituals than they were inner cleansing and having an inner walk with the Lord. And, and by the way, all these things that they, he's pronounced woe, woes upon, have they been duplicated in Christianity as a whole, in Christendom? Have, they been, have, have religions done the same thing in the name of Christ? Yeah. And so, and you and I have to be very careful because we can do the same thing. Uh, just because we're born again doesn't mean that we can't all of a sudden you know, um, <clears throat> become extravagant in some areas or become ritualistic. And so there's a danger there of that type of thing and that type of legalism. In, uh, in number seven, woe that he pronounces, he says, and this this has got to have shocked the people when he mentions it. Look down at verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whited sepulchres which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Again, wow, just really scathing comments. Understand how they did things back then. And it makes a little bit more sense. If we uh, if we remember that according to the law in the Old Testament, they had several ways of being defiled, okay, where they couldn't do the ceremony. The defilement could become because a woman in her normal monthly period, that could be a defiling that had to be taken care of. Giving birth, that was a defiling that had to be taken care of. Um, dealing with a dead body, a dead animal, was one of the most extreme situations of defilement. In fact, if you go back, dealing and handling a corpse, A human corpse was the longest period, 7 to 10 days, in restoring to a point where you could again do worship. Now, again, in that culture, who did the burial preparation? If a family member died, who did it? The family did it, or the neighbors. And so, did did they avoid doing it? No. They just realized, this is a part of life, we need to do it, but when I'm dealing with a corpse, I'm going to be defiled that doesn't mean I have can't have contact with other people it doesn't mean that I can't do normal business we're not talking shunning we're talking spiritually defiled. That means I couldn't make sacrifice. I couldn't enter into the temple to do Passover, let's say. I would have to go through a process before then. And so it's not that I'm, I'm ostracized. It's not that I'm kicked out of the synagogue or out of the worship center, but I have a process to go before I do the normal ritual of worship that would be involved, especially with the tabernacle temple area. And so the contact of the corpse would, would require the most lengthiest period of time. The most days to get reinstated to just, okay, I can do the normal routine of things in the temple while I do my normal routine of life. And so he said, you Pharisees are like a dead corpse. That if somebody touches you, gets near you, you defile them. You put them in a spot where they really aren't being in a right tune with the Lord in the sense that they can't worship the normal way. And he calls them whited sepulchres. The sepulchres the, are the graves. The sepulchres, and what they did in Bible days is they, they did two, they, in the holidays. And it would make sense right at this point that he's speaking. Usually around Jerusalem, when it's holiday time and a lot of people are traveling, they would mark the graves more clearly. And there was a couple of reasons why they did that. One of the reasons during the spring or the festival, remember Passover in particular, we're talking Passover in March, April, right around our Easter time. What they would do is they would dress up the graves because they were just it was nicer. Okay. Do people ever do that? Do they ever put at different times of the year put flowers, flags? It's it's seasonal type thing and showing respect. They would clean up the grave, so to speak. And at times they would paint with whitewash. They would paint the face or the border of the grave. Especially in Bible days in New Testament they could have they could have a cave, they could have some type of, of rise that they've built out of blocks, and they could have this as a family tomb. And you remember, Bible, we've, we've discovered different ossuaries. That's where, um, let's say they had the mausoleum made out of stone. They would enter in, and they would take, after the bodies decayed, they would take the bones and put them into a smaller box called an ossuary, and then they would put that aside and that gave room in this little mausoleum. It give room for the next relative who would die, and they could be on the rock bed that would be in there. And so it was very common, and we find frequently bones in ossuaries, and some of them um, back to Bible days that are buried in caves and whatnot, that were taken out of those grave spots, out of those mausoleums. I, I'm not sure what terms to use. So they would have these family plots, these family spots, and they would mark them, and especially if you're a traveler, remember how this could happen, if they did inside of a hillside and you're traveling, you don't want to be crossing over a grave because if you crossed over the top of a grave, you could become unclean. Okay, do we do that same thing with cemeteries? Do we mark things and kind of, in cemeteries do we like to just walk across or we t- yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a matter of respect, I think, and so um, they would do that, and they would whitewash them. So they would do them for two reasons: one, because it was it was beautifying, respectful type of a deed that was very cultural, like our culture, and they would do it to avoid unintended contact with a grave. If all of a sudden you parked, you're walking and you park by this this spot that just happens to be you know where you can lean back. It's been a long day, and there's a stone there, and you can lean it back against the stone, and then you find out this stone is blocking. A grave, what does that do to you worshiping after you've traveled for two weeks to get there? You know, so you can make you unclean. So they would mark the stones. They would whitewash them. And so they would, they would say, okay, this is it. It's a warning sign. It's a beautifying sign. He's saying, you guys are kind of like these graves that, you know, ha- that are whitewashed, that people can all of a sudden come upon and they may not see. They're, they're obvious, but they cause defilement. You guys are dangerous because inside of you is something that is really, really defiling and takes people away from the Lord. That's a really serious claim that you are like a dead corpse you are defiling. In a Jewish culture, this is really, really loaded statement where he's, you know, he's decrying them and he's comparing them to something that is horrible and awful and that people don't even realize how dangerous this thing is. And so the crowds had to be shocked. Then he makes another pronouncement that deals with graves once again. Look what he goes on and what he says. He says as he goes a little bit further, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, we be witnesses unto you that we that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. What's he mean by that? Okay, let's compare. Do we ever, do we in our culture um, take graves of heroes and keep... Flames lit, the great flags flying around certain graves. Okay, do we do that with any leaders? Okay, so we have um, the one that comes to my mind right away is Kennedy's tomb, uh, the, the, the perpetual flame. Okay. And the eternal flame. Okay. And you have that, you have those types of things. And we make sure they're decorated, they're nice, and those types of things that are, are in honor of those who are our national heroes in, that re, in respect of legendary heroes in America. So we do that same thing. They did it with prophets. And when they would, so in the New Testament, if they knew or they said, okay, we think that the body of Elijah is here. Well, it can't be the body of Elijah. Just want to see if you're awake. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just want to check you. Okay. Okay. It's like that question. You know, how many, how many animals did Moses take in the ark? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So just see if you're awake. So we have Elisha. We have, um, uh, you know, Different, different prophetic guys that over the history. And he says, okay, and so by New Testament era, where they found some of those or where they thought they were by legend or by, by tradition, they would mark these graves, and these graves were kept really nice because here's the prophet, let's just say, the prophet Amos. This is where he's buried, and then you could tell tales to your children, and you could pass on. And, and by the way, a lot of Jewish history was passed on orally. Okay, And so this would prompt an opportunity to pass on the oral traditions uh, and teachings of somebody like, uh, like Amos or whoever. And so they would take care of the tombs. Then you have prophets like Jeremiah. How did the Jews treat Jeremiah? Did they listen to him right away? No, no, they, they, they got upset, they threw him in a pit, he's in slime up to his armpits, they pull him back out, they shred the things that he has written, and they come to him and they say, tell us what God wants. He says, why, why, you people keep on, you, you, you don't listen to me, we'll listen this time, we'll listen this time, just go and find out, he goes and finds out what God wants, comes back, tells him, and they say, we don't want to do that, you're lying. And they do just the opposite, and then God punishes them for it. And so that's his ministry of one of, of real frustration. So let's take somebody like a, like a Jeremiah, okay, that the people didn't listen to, and they persecuted, they didn't want anything to do with it. Now, generations later, Jeremiah is heroic. And modern generations of Jews that Jesus is talking to, they would say, here's a um, memorial stone to Jeremiah who died in Egypt, by the way. Here's his memorial stone, and he is, you know, we, you know, he is just a great hero. But they didn't think he was heroic back then. Okay? They didn't want anything to do with him. But does that ever happen with our leaders? That at the time that they're doing something they're not heroic, but later on yeah. In our lifetime the one that comes to my mind is do you remember all the hassle that Reagan had during his presidency? And he was corrupt and he was this and he was that and now after he's dead what what is he considered now? One of the, one of the top few presidents. Yeah. Um, so it happens in our culture too. And so they did that with the prophets and he's saying here you are you're bragging and you're saying if we had been there we, this wouldn't have happened. We would have listened to the prophets. We would have done that. And he says, I remind you. I remind you. And he goes, that's his, some of the statement. You are the children of these people who killed the prophets. And he goes a little bit further. In verse 31, wherefore be witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets, fill you up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, woo, now you generation of vipers, wow, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall... Kill and crucify. So you're saying, oh, if we were there, we would have been right on the, we would have listened to him. And he says, really, really? I'm sending you people and you didn't even listen. What prophet did he already send that a lot of them didn't listen to? The leaders didn't listen to? John the Baptist. Okay, what, what people is Jesus going to send, future tense, and you're going to kill and crucify? and crucify, Himself, number one. But who else? The apostles. The apostles. And so he's predicting that you are, you are claiming you know, all this historical, you know, heroic thing. But you yourself, you're not listening because those prophets in the past come from the same God who right now is going to send you the apostles, who right now has sent you me, and you're going to kill me. You Jewish leaders come Thursday, Friday, uh, come Friday, you're going to get the crowd to yell, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas instead. And some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. And he goes on, he says, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. All these things shall come upon this generation. This is a national statement. Statement. this is what he's talking about as them as a group of people as a as an entity they have rejected in the past they're going to reject in the near future and judgment is going to come upon them and so basically what he's got is a statement that he's, claim, he's pointing out that they aren't listening to the same God who sent the prophets in the past. You claim that you would have done better, but you got the opportunity right now and you aren't doing better. You know the irony of this whole statement that he talks about this persecution and this idea of actively going after the new messengers? Oh, by the way, how will he confirm that these, these messengers are from God? Hebrews chapter 2, he will give them signs and wonders that they will be able to do to confirm that they are messengers from God. And even though they hear about him at the book of, in the book of Acts, they will reject. They will do the same thing they're doing to Jesus Christ. They will put him off for it. And so Jesus is saying, you are just like your ancestors who were stubborn and hard-hearted. And what really strikes me is the irony of all this. The Jews keep on going back all the time, our generations, our ancestors, we are of David, we are of Abraham, we are we are going to heaven because we're Jewish. But Jesus has just reminded them, even though they're God's elect people, how have they responded to God over most of the generations? Not good. They have rejected God most, in most every generation. I mean, how many times did they keep the law with all the different Sabbath years and Sabbath days? They had it, and within a generation of getting, uh, I'm sorry, within a generation of the kingdom established, they didn't observe it for decades for a long, lengthy period of time and so uh, that was part of the Babylonian captivity because for every one of those years of jubilees you're going to be in, in captivity for 70 years because you missed 70 jubilee years. And so he's pointing out that your, your ancestry is not what you claim it to be. You look back and you say, we're, you know, we are even better than our fathers, and our fathers are really spiritual. They weren't spiritual, and you aren't better than your fathers. That's his bottom line that he's talking about. So he condemns them, and he condemns the nation. This is not the first time on this day or this week that he condemns the nation and says, you're going to be judged by God. You're going to be judged by God. And so he makes this comment, and he's going to make another comment within a few minutes after this. He's going to make some more comments about judgment that's coming, but the crowds had to be absolutely shocked. That the leaders are just condemned at this moment. Let's let's make some observations, okay. What he said, is this a fact? Religious leaders at times can do more harm than good if they're not careful. That is an absolute fact, okay. That's a fact. Religious leaders sometimes can do more damage. Jesus demands that his servants be characterized by a servant's heart and humility. That's where he keeps on bringing this up time and time again. Those of you who would be first, put yourself last. Serve, 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 serve others. Servant leadership is his concept. He is repulsed by hypocrisy in the lives of any people. Several times he says, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. And these are people who by, by, um, by crowd standards, they're very, they're very, very uh, highly elevated, but he, he's, he's disgusted. You're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. He agreed that God's word needed to obey be obeyed. Okay, God's law said you need to do the tithing. You ought to have done it but not left the other things undone. And religious leaders are to love what God's word teaches. Okay? That whole concept of love, mercy, justice, taking care of the widows, all those types of things were taught. They were picking and choosing what was beneficial for them, what was easier for them, and what elevated them. And again, I remind you, you and I need to be careful because we can do that same thing. We can become picky. We can become choosy. We can do things that only benefit us, don't cost us, and help us to look good and whatever and whatnot. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. It is wrong for a religious leader and others to To serve for the recognition of men primarily. That that is, and and let's let's throw this out. Should we be respectful of our civil leaders, our religious leaders, our our employment leaders? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with, with being respectful. That is not the issue. The issue here is why do we want to be respected? What are we seeking after? Why do I minister? Why do I, why do, I do the occupation that I do? Is it so that you know, I get benefit out of it purely and solely for money and for popularity? He says that's wrong. He says that's wrong on, on whoever's servant leadership, any servant leadership of any capacity, that's wrong to do. Jesus' preachers are to be men who serve others and help God's people to do what God requires. Remember at the very beginning where he said, you make all these rules, but you don't lift a finger to help people keep them? He said, You gotta help people. You gotta help those individuals. God's preachers should not seek to have honorary titles or honorary greetings for the sake of recognition. Is it appropriate to use respectful titles? Yes, it is. And that's not what we're saying. We're not saying it's wrong to use titles. But the enforcement of titles that, one, are beyond what we should be called. I I, I just struggle. And I know I've got the title. I struggle with the title reverend. That's my personal struggle. Because I don't think men should be called reverends. And I understand it, but it sounds too much like reverent, and there's only one to be revered? That's God. So, um, you know, we all know that we would not want to be using the title here of Father. Father Burgraff. Okay? Father Wayne. We don't want that. okay, Because it's even condemned title that Jesus says, don't use that. Uh, but is it appropriate to use positional titles out of respect? Yes. But why are we using them? Why are they there? Is it because... Okay? And I think it's wrong for, for, for any title. Let's say in this setting. Any title I take or you give me, it would be wrong if it's the attitude of I am better than you. That's why you call me this. Okay? And I think that's true in lots of different phases of life is that, yes, we should have respectful titles. It's appropriate teaching children respect. But why do we want to use those? Is it for self aggrandizement? Is it for self-promotion? Okay, that's a very, very important concept. Jesus' servants are not to seek exaltation, let it come from God. Okay, we are supposed to seek to humble ourselves and let God do the exaltation. We shouldn't worry, have to worry about it or, or Um, manipulate situations so oh you're recognizing me oh isn't that something though it's been totally manipulated so we shouldn't do that type of thing Uh, exalting people is God's business Jesus now let's wrap up and let me just take you to verse 35 verse 35 is an important verse doctrinally it doesn't sound like much to you and me when we first read it but his comment is really really important for you considering the Bible that's on your lap that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth that's not the point from the blood of Abel under the blood of Zacharias. Okay, that statement is a very, very um, important statement when it comes to the inspiration of Scripture. It doesn't seem that way to you, but let me remind you of a couple statements he's made in these conversations. He's already stated earlier that David was inspired, inspired by the Spirit to write Psalms. So Jesus has put his stamp of approval. People ask you this. How do you know that certain books are in the Bible? How do you know that they were there? Oh, in 323 they had the Council of Nicaea. And those men determined which books were going to be in the Bible. That's not true. That is not true. Now, did they recognize which ones were accepted and they codified it into into a written form so that it became um, more, more standardized because there was two or three books in the New Testament that were under discussion, but um, but not by most. And so we start with the Old Testament. How do we know which books in the Old Testament should be there? There were other books written during that period of time. There wasn't just those books of the Old Testament and that's all that were ever written by the Jews. Jews had other Writings. In fact, in the in the uh, apocrypha which is written from that intertestamental period and from Daniel's days, you have other books that are other literature that is there. That's that's put out there from that time period. How do we know which books belong in the Old Testament? Which books don't belong? Well, part of what Jesus said right here is very important. One, he he documented in, in chapter 22 where he makes a comment about Psalms that Psalms belongs. The word of the Lord. It's by the spirit of the Lord. His statement from Abel to Zacharias is critical for you and I to understand that in the Jewish writings, in their Bible, in their Old Testament, they start with the book of Genesis and they end with the book of 2 Chronicles. We end with the book of Malachi, Malachi, however you want to say it. Okay. The Italian version is Malachi. We end with that. Okay. They end with 2 Chronicles. The very last person that's going to be killed in 2 Chronicles is Zacharias, the son of whatever it is, Baruchias. That's So what he is making a statement is all the way from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, all the prophets, all those things within there These are, you guys are being held responsible for. We would say if we were doing it today, from Genesis to Malachi, okay, and Jesus has just authenticated or authorized the Jewish version of the Old Testament that they understood was inspired by God and was part of what they called the canon, the rule from God. And so um, when we study Bible and say, okay, which books belong, this verse is really critical to say, okay, Jesus put his stamp of approval, here we go, this is it, the Old Testament as we have the Old Testament without those apocryphal books, this is it. This gives us what we want and what we need. Then what happens is there's two incidences that happen that Matthew records and um, how they occurred, one before the other, I'm not sure. So let's pick this one first. Okay, Jesus, this, the story goes on. I'm sorry, Matthew doesn't record this one. Uh, Matthew records the other one. Let's head over to Mark. Mark where we get this story of Mark chapter 12 where there is the statement made. Um, It says in Mark chapter 12, Jesus sat over against the treasury. The next thing Matthew says, they're leaving the temple. They're leaving and exiting. We'll come back to that. But Mark and Luke say before they left, something else happened in the temple. And uh, what it is, is Jesus is sitting there for a period of time. Was it in between the debates? Was it after the debates? I don't know. Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. There came a certain poor widow and she threw in two much which make a farthing. And he called unto them his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, this poor widow cast in more than everybody else than all they which have cast in the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Several things that come out. So let's set the scene, okay? And let's get a sense of how much money she threw in, okay? Uh, it's very normal. Religious centers have money boxes. That's, that's not unusual for Christianity. It's not unusual for Judaism. It was just very, very common throughout all the ancient world. By the way, um, when I do abbreviations, A.N.E. Okay, that's not uh, that's not a TV channel. Okay, A.N.E. stands for Ancient Near East. Okay, and so when you see that, and I do a lot, is Ancient Near East. We're talking about the culture, the whole culture that time. If you see a B.C. on my notes. Okay, that, uh, small letters. Okay, not before Christ, but small letters. Sometimes I'll put a B with a slash and a C. It's because. If you see a W with a slash, it's with. Good luck figuring all that out, okay? But uh, several, I, I keep forgetting to mention that and several of you ask questions at times. You know, what is your hieroglyphics that you're doing? Uh, that's what some of it is. So they have their temple. In the temple treasury, okay, we have in, uh, for Jewish, it is in the extreme court where everybody could get to it. The men would pass by I'd be in that area where, we, our four-year area would be where the offerings and they would have, they they had a series of what they called shofar chests. Shofar is that ram's horn that you see that they blow at times. And they would have these horns that could, uh, the, the understanding is that they were in the wall and they would drop the coins and they would go in the chest that's on the inside of the wall. And I didn't realize this, but some say that the horns the, was the opening and it got narrower. Others are saying, no, it's just the opposite. The narrow was on the outside and it got bigger as it went in and the reason that the gift for it was narrow on the outside was nobody could put their hands in yeah and and get into that box because they had thieves that would come and try to steal at the treasury can you imagine that doesn't that strike you odd that people try to steal an offering Never happened in America. Okay, and so they had these shofar chests, and they would be made out of metal or actually ram's horns. Uh, some suggest they're made by metal, and when you put the coins in, the coins would make a lot of noise. And that trumpeting that they talk about, the the um, uh, the Pharisees love the trumpet. What they doing. they're doing? some are saying that's what it's referring to. It's like when those kids you know those wishing wells, and they put the coin in and go. You know, that's what they're saying this was kind of like um, you have different different people at different times saying different things about it. And so they would put this in and people would walk by and they would have their assigned offerings or they would say okay this one and they would have the priest at times when they were taking special offerings remember they had three tithes a year. Okay, so you had your, uh, over a period of three years, excuse me, you had three different sets of tithes. And so your tithe could be your normal tithe, your temple tax, you also had it periodically, you had to pay uh, a tithe for charity that was used to help out certain peoples. And so they would assign priests, from what we understand historically, different priests would be there, and they would say, okay, let me check your coins. I want to make sure you're using legitimate coins that would be acceptable because if you were coming all the way from Assyria, and he's using Assyrian coins, what's the problem? They, they're no good here in in the Palestine. There's only a small set of coins, Roman coins, Palestinian coins, and so if you're bringing stuff, you got to get you got to exchange these coins somewhere else. The temple isn't into coin exchanging. Oh, you could you could go over there to my brother Sam over there. He'll exchange your coins for a slight fee of twenty percent. Okay, um, and so they had people guiding. They were the the priestly ushers. Which chat which horn you need to drop your gift in for whatever. Well, one of them was a voluntary. Offering. The voluntary offering, we don't know which one it was for Jesus talking about, probably this one, the voluntary offering that as they'd come by and it was, okay, given out of showing the sense of um, gratitude or giving. Well, Jesus positions himself. Some way, somehow, he's watching where this was set up on the wall and he's, give, he's eyeballing people's offerings. Now, if somebody were standing here watching you give offerings, as the plate is passed what would you think <clears throat> yeah 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 would it bother you yeah see we're we're just we, uh, we're very strongly saying our offering is our business and ever you think Okay. and so Jesus is sitting there doing something that we would probably be a little bit uncomfortable with and he's watching what people are giving. As they're giving these voluntary offerings which are based on the wealth of the giver and then the gratitude within the giver's heart, the rich are putting money in and they're putting a lot of money in. So let's not pick on the rich here. The rich are giving. But Jesus makes an observation that as they're giving, this woman comes and she puts in two mites. Do you have any footnote on what a mite is? Not the bug, not the, you know, the, how much? 50 cents, cents? okay. Um, It, you know, inflation takes care of it. Let's use today's dollars right now okay, in 2017, and compare what it would be about. It's close to that, is what they did. And so he is using the lowest, the smallest coins possible in Bible days, okay. And the farthing and some of this when he translated, he's going into Roman, Roman coins because he's got Roman readers reading Mark. So trying to help them to understand. So the smallest coin in the Jewish society was the lepta. The lepta was, you know, 100, one one hundredth of a denarii. A denarii was your day's wage. So whatever you got for the day's wage take one one hundredth of it, that's one of the coins that she's dropping in. Let's just let's just see if we can uh, do it this way. Let's say ten dollars per hour, okay, that the person is making eight hours a day. And so eighty dollars gross. This woman is giving two tenths of that she's giving, you know, a buck sixty. Okay? She's giving very little by comparison. But Jesus says what is amazing about this is that's all she has. She has a buck sixty. She's living on a buck sixty. Is that living in poverty? By our standards, is she impoverished? She is big-time impoverished, and you know, 80 cents, one of those coins, most of us would say at least keep one of the coins because it might get you something. <laughs> it might get you a donut, okay? Um, Use donut, you know, um, get you by. So she's got, I mean, this is, this is an impoverished situation that she's giving. And uh, she's, he, he identifies her not only as a poor person, but there's another term in here that's very important. What is she? She's a widow. Okay, she doesn't have any fallback on her husband. We don't know if she has family, but she appe- seemingly appears to be a loner. Uh, by by his comments, that that's everything. So he's making comment that her buck sixty that she's throwing in, is more than all these rich dudes that are dropping in. It's not based upon the amount that she's throwing in; it's the amount that she has left over. And he is commending this woman that she's putting in everything. Now, why would she put in everything? There's two possible attitudes here, and they could be blent together. She's putting in one out of total trust for the Lord. The other one is, I mean we do this, when we give there's two attitudes that should be apparent when we give trust and another T here TH, thanksgiving, okay, thanksgiving and trust and so she's giving with a great gratitude for now think about this, she's giving a buck sixty, it's all she has because she is overflowing with how God has been so good to her that she has a whole buck sixty. And most of us, that's a soda. Yeah. And we would have no problem with it. And we would, you know. She is so grateful for what God has done. I'm going to give you everything I have this day. I am so grateful for this day. I can fast. I can pray this day. I'm just giving it to you. I'm so great, so so absolutely. So Jesus is standing there and watching this, and Jesus makes comment to his disciples that he points out that this woman is giving, and he uses her as a biblical example of giving, and uh, and commends her for it, and says that her giving is just so commendable because several things. She didn't do it like the Pharisees did it. There seems implied by everything that's happening here. Hers is in silence. She isn't doing one of these numbers. Everybody look, everybody in the room, I'm giving a buck sixty. Well, if she put that in and she announced it, what would most of us do? We'd laugh. Okay. We would with crudeness, we'd say, yeah, right, buck sixty. Big deal. What's a buck sixty gonna do to pay for the temple cause? But she but that's not the point. She's giving a depth of gratitude. She has obviously a big amount of trust in the Lord to take care of her needs. And so Jesus makes a comment, okay? The gift isn't, the, the value of the gift is based not on the amount given, but with the amount kept. Let's make some observations, okay? Uh, Jesus is concerned about and takes note of financial offerings. He does. We can't get away from that. He does. Okay. He talks about it in scriptures even though we don't want to talk about it. He does. Your Lord is concerned about what you and I give. We can't get away from that truth. He approves of even, this is, this is different than American culture. He approves of even the very poorest giving offerings. In our culture we kind of we want to give a pass to those who are the poorest because they don't need to. In our, in our tax system, okay, Do we want to pass anybody who's poor that they shouldn't have any responsibility? Our our whole tax code is set up that way. Okay, and so we got to be careful that when it comes to the Lord's work, poverty does not excuse somebody from giving sacrificially. Okay? That's, there's no excuse in the mind of Christ. Even the poorest should be able to give something and to give, give in a spirit of trust and thanksgiving. Jesus approves and accepts. This is, this is weird. Think this through. Her, a lot of her income comes out of what's going into these, into these shofars. She's going to benefit from it. So her income's coming out of there but she's giving to it. Here, here's, here, here let me give you an analogy. I don't have to give tithes and offerings because my income is from your tithes and offerings. It's already been tithed. It's already been given. So I don't have to give anything to the Lord because I'm getting from money that was given to the Lord. Wrong. Wrong. Just because I'm a beneficiary of that doesn't mean I don't have to have in my heart an area of thanksgiving and trust by giving in a sacrificial fashion. I have obligations too. Even though it comes from, I'm going to use the term tithed money, I still have to be able to give. And this woman does that same thing. Approved giving is based not just on the amount given, but the amount the giver still has in their possession afterwards. We talked about that already. Let's move on. The uh, approved giving is based upon the attitude of thanksgiving and by living by faith. That with what we keep for ourselves. That's very, very important. Jesus uses the example of others to teach and encourage his disciples to do likewise. And so is it appropriate at times to use uh, stories, lessons of people giving to encourage others to do likewise? Yep, Jesus did it. Jesus commends generous giving in a semi-public fashion that he does this, even though it's given in confidence. He shares so as to help others to be challenged by it. I don't think that means that I should go and check out what you give and use that in a sermon. Um, But I think that we can use stories and incidences from people that we don't know, uh, illustrations from the mission field, things like that, of people giving sacrifice officially to help us. Jesus' followers are to live in a life of contrast, total contrast to the general religious population. Uh, and that's what he's doing in this setting. He's just condemned the Pharisees who don't help the widows. And here's, a, here's the irony. The widow is giving to a system that is going to help them financially survive. Okay, so he commends it. Even though there's going to be abuses, she still has a responsibility to give. That's what she has to deal with her giving and her trust in the Lord. What happens right after that is back in Matthew. And let's just get it started, then we'll stop okay, and for just a minute here. In Matthew 23, right after he's commended the woman, he's pronounced the woes. Go to chapter 23, verse 37. In chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus leaves the temple. He's commended. He's conflicted with people. Now he's going out, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he goes, says, you killed the prophets. He just talked about that, remember? you killed. You're going to stone and persecute and slay and crucify the people who are preaching. You killed the prophets. You stoned them that are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gives her chickens under her wings? Gather her her chickens under wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. You, and then he says, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, blessed is he that comes the name of the Lord. Here's what's going to happen. Okay, Matthew alone records this instance. It's not the only time that he's cried over Jerusalem. What we have in in Luke is as he's approaching the city, he cries because he says, you're going to be destroyed. He also has stated that um, there's going to be judgment and he's pronounced the woes upon people. He had predicted there's doom upon the cities. Remember he had done that when he had given the curse of the fig tree. Remember he had done it when he gave the parable of the uh, tenants who rebelled, how oh, the master comes back and destroys the cities. And he's talked about the marriage feast that the king's going to come and destroy everybody who resisted his prophets. So he's given a lot of uh, of a lot of different detail at this moment. And uh, about Jerusalem's destruction. Now as he leaves Jerusalem as a free man, he's walking out, he cries over the city. And he says, I would, I would, I would, but you would not, you would not. He loves the city, and this is going to set the scenario for the the rest of the week. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He is burdened for them, but they are going to turn on him. And what he says later on as he leaves, he's walking out and he says, jerusalem you're beautiful i love you i care for you you're going to be destroyed and the apostles the disciples say wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute well you're saying that everything's going to be torn down look at this city it's beautiful it's marvelous and he says and they say oh wait wait you said it's going to be torn down when's this going to take place When's this, what's the next things that are going to happen in history? They remember their Old Testament. When the city is attacked, shortly thereafter, the Messiah comes back and sets up a kingdom. So they're walking with him, hearing him lament, and they say, oh wait, if it's going to be destroyed, then um, Jesus, that must mean you're setting up your kingdom. When are you going to do it? And he gives them prophetic information, Matthew 24, that gives us a timeline of all the future events. Time-wise that we need to pick up next week.